0: What we expect in the future shapes how we live today. Recently, my family and I got a car that actually works. The thing is, in order to, the, to get the particular car we wanted, we had to wait one month for it to be delivered. And the expectation that a reliable car is coming transformed the way that we treated our old dilapidated car. You know, like, should we vacuum up all these spilled Cheerios on the floor of the car? Nah. What's the point? Should we pay a lot of money, get a nice fancy car wash? Forget about it. We got a better car coming. When we were tempted to complain about the old car, we would quickly meditate on the better car to come. Future hope shaped how we live in the present. That's a small example, but... It's like that with so much in life, isn't it? The engaged couple plans, registers, invites, frets, dreams, all until the long-expected wedding day. We fix our sight on some coming day, and the anticipation for that day sets our course until it comes. The student circles graduation day on her calendar. And then she's willing to spend a few more all-nighters studying chemistry because she sees that day is coming soon. The late career professional calculates when to set a retirement date. Or for others, they simply calculate how many groceries they can afford till next month's payday. We are future-oriented people. The fingerprints of the future are deeply ingrained on every present moment. But what about the day? The day that Christians have called the day of judgment. How does that day shape today? To be sure, many deny that that day is coming. Many Eastern religions teach that history is cyclical. The nihilist says that history is going nowhere. There is no end. And so today is meaningless. The hedonist says, if tomorrow we die, then eat, drink, be merry. Scripture gives a different view. And it's a view that I think better explains why people all over are so fixated on the future. We instinctively live as if there is a final goal to everything. And that's because history does indeed have an end date, and it's that end date that the Apostle Paul has in mind in his final letter to Timothy, the pastor at the church in Ephesus. So please open with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can find this on page 996 in the Bibles provided, page 996. Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's near death. This is it his final instruction to his son in the faith. What does Paul say about how the future should shape today? Listen as I read Second Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The last word of this chapter is you, plural. Plural. Uh, I'm from New York, so we could translate it as grace be with you guys, uh, or the Alabama Standard Version, grace be with y'all. So, yes, Paul is writing to Timothy, his apostolic delegate, but there's a message here, not just for Timothy, not just for pastors, but for all of us about how the future should shape today. Main question this chapter answers is how do we remain faithful? Until Christ's return. How do we remain faithful until Christ's return? And we're going to have two answers, two points today. Number one, stay committed to the truth. How do we remain faithful until Christ's return? We stay committed to the truth. That's what we're going to see in verses one to eight, Paul points our gaze to the last day in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Uh, with an intro like that, what follows is no ordinary instruction. Jesus Christ will return. That fact changes everything. We heard about it from Jesus himself earlier when Mark read to us from the book of Matthew. Jesus said in John 5, An hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's the truth that Paul echoes here. Christ Jesus will appear bodily to establish his kingdom on earth, And he will judge all. He'll judge those who are alive when he returns and he'll judge those who are already dead. He will give the verdict that forever fixes our final and eternal state. And since that's the case, all of life is preparation for the day when we will see Jesus That's why Paul appeals to the presence of God and of Christ Jesus as he gives Timothy this final solemn mandate. He is calling God as his witness. What he's about to say is very serious. So what does he call Timothy to do? In light of Christ's return, verse two, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In other words, he's saying, stay committed to the truth. By preaching the truth, even if others wander from it. Of course, some of these things can and should be done in private conversations, rebuking, exhorting. We all do that with one another. But by placing preach at the head of this list, Paul shows that he here is focusing on Timothy's preaching ministry. He is saying that the pulpit is the beating heart of the church. Really? Preaching, a man stands up in a group of people, opens up a book, reads from it, and talks about it? Is that really how a supernatural God intends to work among us? It is. Because notice, Paul doesn't say preach inspiring stories. He doesn't say preach insightful sayings. He says preach the word. We studied last week in chapter three, verse 16, that all scripture is God breathe. I love it in the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 37, when God brings the prophet of Ezekiel to a valley that's full of dead and dry bones. And God tells Ezekiel not to do stand-up comedy, not to give those dry bones a Ted talk. He tells him in verse five, prophesy over these bones and say to them, "O oh, dry bones, hear The word of the Lord. What happens? Those bones come to life and stand up. That's a picture of how God gives life by the proclamation of his spirit-inspired word. And because Christ is coming in the future, there is no off-season for preaching today. He says we need to do this in season and out of season. There may be times in the life of a church where the members are more hungry for God's word. There may be seasons when we're not, but we still need to feed on the nourishing word anyway. Richard Baxter said, I preached as never sure to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. We continually need to be reproved and rebuked and exhorted. You realize that's why God has ordained verbal communication to be at the center of a church's life. In our fallen state, all of us were bent toward self-rule. What can conquer our self-rule? Words, speech that does something, speech from a king who conquers the rebellion of our hearts. Sometimes that happens quickly and dramatically. Oftentimes it's gradual. The word does its work week after week like a plant grows, it's sometimes imperceptible, but then you realize how much you've grown. That's why Paul says, do this with complete patience and teaching. Continue to pour the water of the word over the jagged edges of our hearts, and they will become smooth. Why should Timothy's church, why should our church prioritize preaching the word? Because what we see in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. People pursue what they love. False teachers are only influential because there's an audience who wants to hear them. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. These are probably professing believers because Paul says they wander off into myths, myths is a term he uses a couple times in 1 Timothy for quasi-Christian spiritual sounding error. Growing up, uh, there was a pizzeria in my town. There's a pizzeria, or more than one pizzeria, in every town on Long Island. But this pizzeria didn't have a lot of people who really ate there, except for my dad. Uh, We like to say he kept the pizzeria in business. It was right by his office. He ate there pretty much every day. My parents no longer live in that town, and guess what? That pizza parlor has closed down. (laughs) If a congregation keeps turning up to eat the meal that a false teacher is cooking, if you keep on showing up to keep a false teacher in business, we bear significant responsibility for that. Paul here, God's word lays the blame on us if we support such teaching through our attendance, through our giving, buying their books. So beware, false teaching is a poison that tastes like honey. It's attractive. Notice the impulse to find spiritual instruction that affirms all your desires isn't new. It was happening right here in the first century. They're finding teachers to suit their own passions. Think about this. If God is good, blazingly holy, and pure, and if we are fallen, then we should expect that God will sometimes disagree with our desires, no matter how deeply in our hearts we feel them. Always trust your heart is a bad motto. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick Who can understand it? Because Christ is coming back and we need to be ready for that future day. What we need is not a preacher who will tell us always what we want to hear. We need the word. So CHBC, that's why we're committed to what's called expositional preaching as the main diet of our preaching here. And all that simply means is that the sermon aims to take a passage of scripture and exposit it or explain it and then apply it to our lives. And though not all of us preach, all of us should be to use the Bedi Anyawele's great term, expositional listeners. The Bedi says when we listen diligently to sermons that seek to faithfully explain God's word, quote, his word, his voice becomes sweet to us. And as it does, we are better able to push to the background the many voices that rival God's voice for control over our lives. So come to church ready to listen to God. Consider praying through the sermon passage in advance to prepare your heart. That's why we we publish them. We print it on the back of the bulletin and in the, the sermon card. Now, of course, preachers aren't the only ones who speak God's word. Ephesians 4 calls us all to the ministry of building up the body of Christ, And that passage says that we do that by speaking the truth in love to one another. So dig deep in the soil of scripture so that when God gives you an opportunity to encourage somebody, to challenge somebody, you're ready with precious gems that you've discovered as you mine the word of God. Since Christ is coming Faithfulness means preaching the truth even when others wander from it. But what sort of character, what sort of lifestyle does that require? Look at verse 5. It requires for us to always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here Paul calls Timothy to persevere, just as Paul has even unto death, it's part of how we stay committed to the truth. We persevere with sober-mindedness, hanging on to Christ through trials. This life of endurance that he's describing isn't just for superstar apostles. It's not just for Timothy. It's for every single believer. And it's not just that we hold on and endure through tribulation. We're supposed to go on offense as well. He says, do the work of an evangelist. That means that we herald the good news that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and died as a sacrifice, and rose again and ascended to offer forgiveness and salvation to all who would turn from our sin and trust in him. We proclaim this in our sermons, but all of us as believers proclaim it in everyday conversation as God gives opportunity. I love how Max Stiles defines evangelism, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade why is it imperative that Timothy keep this kind of evangelistic ministry going? Why is it imperative that we do the same? Because of what we see in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul is about to exit the scene. Every generation of believers is called to take up the torch of gospel ministry from the previous generation, as God brings that generation home. Uh, The drink offering in the Old Testament was, according to Numbers 15, a pleasant aroma given to God. It's a fitting picture for death. The jar is tipped, the wine slowly spills out, and drop by drop, all of it is consumed. On the fire of the altar. Paul himself said in Romans, We're to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. We live and die to his glory. You see, Paul's future shaped his present. He lived his life as an offering because he wanted to get people ready for Christ's return. He's telling Timothy and he's telling us to do the same. But is Paul boasting? When he says in verse 7, I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, no. I mean, we shouldn't imagine him writing these words from his mountaintop perch in triumphant victory with the Rocky soundtrack playing in the background. That is not what's going on. He's in prison. He's describing the Christian life as a, a battle, as a marathon, and he's saying, really with his final breath, I've made it. I made it to the end. I fulfilled the work God gave me to do, and I still love Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life. And of course, Paul knows that he hasn't made it by his own strength. He told the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, that's our responsibility. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we run the race but it is God who runs in and through us. We are called to hold fast to him, and yet as we do, he will hold us fast. My senior brothers and sisters, do you feel close to finishing the race? Know that your faithfulness is an encouragement to so many of us. Many years ago, I ran the Chicago Marathon It's 26.2 miles, and that .2 is important uh, because the marathon is mostly flat in Chicago until you get to the very end. That last .2 miles, it turns uphill. You get so close to the end, and then I realize some of my hardest steps are here before me. Notice Paul is spending the sunset years of his life in a cold prison. My senior brother or sister I wonder if God has called you to finish your race, in a sense, uphill, kind of like Paul. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one. Maybe you feel lonely, or you're fighting failing health, or you're facing financial insecurity. Let me encourage you, don't give up now. The end is near. Trust that he who brought you safe thus far will safely lead you home. Wherever we are in our race, all of us have got to keep the end in sight. That's what we see in verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In the ancient world, the winner of a race would be crowned with a wreath made out of leaves, a sort of vine. And this image appears all over Scripture to help us As believers, look forward to the day of judgment. 1 Thessalonians calls it the crown of exaltation. James calls it the crown of life. Peter calls it the crown of glory. Here we see it's also a crown of righteousness. Those who have no righteousness of our own, uh, no moral standing that would make us acceptable to God, we receive a crown that only the righteous could ever deserve. We receive it only because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What an amazing gift. If you're not a Christian, I wonder how this notion of judgment day strikes you. Uh, Judgment would seem to run counter to some of our culture's values. Tolerance, political correctness, inclusivity. Yet, At the same time, it seems innate for us to long for justice. Yes, this may be an era of tolerance, but it's also an era of outrage. It's an era where the social media mob is ready to pounce on anything it deems unjust. This month, April, uh, marks the 25th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda. Over 800,000 were murdered mostly minorities from the Tutsi tribe. That country is spending the next hundred days in mourning. We see atrocities. We remember such injustices. Deep down, we really do long for what is wrong to be made right. Well, friends, that's what this passage promises will happen. The justice that we long for is coming because the righteous judge is coming. There's only one problem. It's that you and I, all of us, though our sins may be different in degree, they're all the same in kind. All of our sins are acts of treason and rebellion against the righteous and just God who made us. God is good. He is good to judge all of us because he made us. We're accountable to him. And none of us have attained his just standard. The son of Jesus The Son of God, Jesus Christ, came into the world to live the only fully just life that's ever been lived. And yet he knows more than anyone what it means to taste injustice because this unjust world nailed him to a cross. And praise God, he did not stay there. In his justice, he conquered death and sin and Satan and rose again on the third day, to declare just all of us who would turn from our sin and trust in him. Isn't that amazing that all of us who are aware of unjust things that we've done could be clothed in the righteous record of the one who is perfectly good, perfectly just. He will give us his crown of righteousness as a free gift. And we can have hope because he is coming again to make every wrong right, to establish a new heavens and a new earth, to banish sin and death, and to place that crown of glory on all who are clothed in his righteousness. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be someone, as Paul says, who loves Christ's appearing. We long for it and dream and yearn for it. The anticipation that little kids feel before Christmas morning pales in comparison. And though the night may be long and dark, though we may even face death, just like Paul did, by God's grace, we will persevere, because we know that the light of the world is dawning soon. And so with that hope spurring us on, we remain faithful. How? By staying committed to the truth. And yet, what does it look like to stay committed to the truth as we face such opposition and struggle? Can we do this alone? No. And the good news is we don't have to. That leads us to our second point, point number two, stand together to the end. How do we remain faithful until Christ returns? Number two, we stand together to the end. Verses 9 to 22 at first might look like a scattered list of travel updates, greetings from names that are pretty much unfamiliar to us. But this section is really a rich portrait of how our posture today as we wait for that future day is one of standing together with linked arms. Why must we stand together to the end? One reason is that some will oppose us. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. If you've been wronged, it's okay to acknowledge it. That's what Paul does here. He tells Timothy in verse 15 Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. This is the sad truth. In this fallen world, there are some who make it their business to try to take down faithful ministers. We are called to stand with those who stand for the truth. We're called to reject those who reject the gospel, to steer clear of them. We're called to leave vengeance to God. We also stand together to the end because some will desert us. Look at verse 10. Uh, We don't know why Crescens has gone to Galatia or Titus to Dalmatia, but we do know that Demas In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We see in Colossians 4 that Demas was once part of Paul's ministry team. In that letter, Demas was sending warm greetings to the Colossian church, and now he's gone. What are the things in this world that you are tempted to love more than Christ's appearing? Why would you trade the endless riches of life with Christ for the pennies that this world offers? Demas, it seems, deserted Paul for good. Others abandoned him at a particular time of need. Look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul here is talking about when he stood on trial, likely in a Roman court. Uh, we don't know exactly when this was. but We see here that no other believers came to vouch for him or to support him. But yet Paul has compassion. Uh, he doesn't want this charge against them. It was wrong of these believers to forsake Paul, but he understands they likely acted out of fear. Uh, it doesn't seem that he thinks they've abandoned Christ altogether. They just weren't there for Paul when he needed them the most. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we are united to one another by the bonds of Christ. That's why we pray so often here for persecuted Christians around the world. If they suffer, we suffer. So how do we stand together to the end? One way is simply through personal presence. Think about it. Paul has just given Timothy this charge in verses 1 to 8. Preach the truth. Faithfully fulfill your ministry in Ephesus. And then verse 9, oh, oh, by the way, could you please come visit me too? We are embodied people. We've got real struggles, real emotions. God hasn't designed us to go it alone. Verse 21, Paul repeats his request, do your best to come before winter. Last Sunday, I mentioned a a personal trial that I've been going through recently. Well, the day after that, on, on Monday, Zach Schlegel, who's a former pastor here at this church, and Isaac Adams gave their time to simply be present with me. We sat down and for about two hours, they just asked me questions and talked and they prayed for me. Oh, that's Christian friendship. That's what I needed. That seems to be what Paul needs here. He says, verse 11, Luke alone is with me. This is the Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke and Acts. He must have been a great guy, but sometimes having multiple different sorts of friends with you can be helpful. So Paul says, get Mark, bring him with you. He's very useful to me for ministry. And this is a wonderful story of transformation. You look back at Acts 15, you see Paul and Barnabas split up and went separate ways. Why? Because they disagreed on whether they could trust Mark. Paul pointed out that Mark had left them in Pamphylia. But brothers and sisters, we shouldn't identify one another primarily by our former mistakes. God has been at work God is transforming believers who previously have let you down. Years later, Mark has changed. So we stand together through personal presence. We can also stand together through practical care. Look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Again, yes, Timothy needs to preach the gospel. He needs to stand up for the truth. But also, winter is coming, and Paul really needs his winter coat. So when you come, you know, Traviz is on the way. Stop by there, grab it. And also, please bring me some reading material. It's a strong possibility these parchments included copies of the Old Testament scriptures. Christians are people of the book. You know, we read because we want to love the Lord with all our mind. It would be no surprise if Paul wanted to spend his dying days meditating on the Word of God. Even Paul had needs. Even Paul had wants. Hear this. It's okay to reach out to other believers and ask them for help. That's what the church is for. When I moved to D.C. about 10 years ago to do the pastoral internship here, I came in on a Friday I was supposed to go say hi to Mark up in his study and and check in, and I mean, I was so excited for what this internship had to offer. I wanted to grow, and I hadn't really gotten to know Mark much before, so this is my first conversation with him, and I'm just ready for the spiritual encouragement that he's going to give me, looking forward to some deep word of wisdom and counsel as I begin this time of pastoral training and study, and I come up, and he's very friendly, and we chat for a minute or so, and he says, you know what, Matt? I'm working on my sermon right now and I'm feeling kind of hungry. There's this place called Good Stuff. You think you could go over there and bring me back some fries? I actually learned a valuable lesson about the Christian life that day. Here I was thinking it's all spiritual. Well, it is. Mark was preparing to preach. But in order to preach, a guy's got to eat. So, proclaiming the good news is of utmost importance. But at the same time, the Christian life isn't a 24-7, never-ending sermon. And I trust that some of you are saying amen in your hearts about that right about now. (laughs) No, we teach the truth, and we work faithfully at our jobs. We share the gospel, and we prepare meals for our kids to feed the hungry. We stand up for the truth, and we also fix up our houses. We help our neighbors out. The point is that we're to do it all together. That's the picture we see here. So members of CHBC, as you consider the fact that even Paul had needs, he needed others, let me urge you, don't stay on the fringes here. Introduce yourself to someone, one person, even after church today, and don't let one another fall through the cracks, because we stand together through personal presence, through practical care, We also stand together through gospel partnership, right? Paul wants Mark to come in verse 11 because Mark is useful to him for ministry. The work of the gospel is not a solitary endeavor. One person plants, another waters, another fertilizes the vine. Uh, Verse 12, Paul has sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus we don't know exactly why. It's probably for ministry there. Uh, We see in the book of Ephesians 6 that Tychicus was a beloved brother, and faithful minister who would encourage their hearts. So the picture we get in these verses is not like of a bunch of Christians in separate silos each doing their own thing. It's a web of cooperation and cross-pollination. The future is shaping today as we all help one another be faithful with the gospel. Look at verses 19 to 21. He asked Timothy to greet Prisca and Aquila, that's a married couple, Who had been Paul's ministry partners in Corinth? This is a good reminder that women were vital to the ministry in the first century, and they are vital to the ministry today. Onesiphorus had come to Rome to help Paul some time ago. We see it in chapter one of the book. Now Paul is sending greetings to his household. Erastus and Trophimus are other members of Paul's ministry entourage. Then we see all these other names: Eubulus and Pudens, Linus and Claudia. These are only mentioned here in the Bible that may mean that they're Christians part of the Roman church that Paul had only just recently got to know. If that's the case, then Timothy wouldn't even really know these people personally, but Paul still wants Timothy to receive their greetings. As I read through these verses this week, it kind of struck me how similar this part of 2 Timothy 4 is to a Sunday evening service here at CHBC. Doesn't this sound like the various travel updates we get? I mean, please come back tonight at five, and we're going to hear Mark Dever and Mark Feathers share about Various friends and pastors and missionaries that they've gotten to see and encourage. We're going to hear how they're doing, the good and the bad. We're going to get to pray for them. What a privilege that this church has been blessed with so many faithful workers and friends we get to support around the world. I recognize if you're newer here, uh, some of the names might not be familiar to you, but you are still part of the engine that is driving their ministry. From Philip on Cape Cod to Jeremy in L.A. Sorry, I guess I'm doing the map my way, not your way. (laughs) Philip in Cape Cod to Jeremy in L.A. (laughs) Michael Lawrence at Hinson in Portland, all the way down to Justin Harris in Naples, Florida, all the way to Hope Henry in Central Asia, and John Fulmer in Dubai, and Mandy Wilson in India, and John Pentecost in Turkey, and Katie Gale elsewhere in Asia, and Ken Bugwa in Kenya. That's just a fraction of the names. We could keep going. You don't need to know these folks personally to stand with them in prayer. Just turn to the back of the membership directory. You'll see them all listed there. It's thrilling to be connected to these friends, yet at the same time, it's a big stewardship. I love the way uh, Jamie Dunlop talks about our church budget as a spiritual mutual fund. We are investing in a portfolio of eternal value. And we can stand together with these friends simply by giving faithfully. Well, as we stand together to the end, who do we look to as our ultimate example? It's Christ himself. Look at verse 17. When Paul was all alone at his trial, he wasn't really alone, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. <coughs> so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. This doesn't mean Paul was literally thrown to the lions. It most likely means he felt defenseless and near death. But God preserved his faith and empowered him to testify to the nations. The risen Jesus had said in Acts 9 that Paul would be his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings. Paul says here, that mission has been fulfilled. He has now testified before all the Gentiles. By that, he doesn't mean every single non-Jewish person on the face of the earth. He means all nations. Rome was the center of the known world. So at this trial, Paul proclaimed Christ in front of those who were there in the capital city from every corner. Get this. God used even Paul's captivity to bring the gospel to Rome. And from there it would continue to run to the ends of the earth. If God could use Paul's suffering and trial in that way, what does he intend to do with yours? We too may suffer for obeying Christ, but God stands with us when we do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were placed into a furnace. Even there, they weren't alone. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Even there. He wasn't deserted. Paul was abandoned by his companions, but not forsaken by Christ. And that's why Paul could remain faithful to the end as he lived his today with that future day in sight. Not because he was so faithful in himself, but because his faithful king was standing with him. That's why he could say with confidence in verse 18, "'The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed.'" and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is Christian hope. Not that we will be spared from trials, but that we will be delivered out of every trial. And until that final day of rescue comes, we are called to stand together. But, even if all should desert us, like Paul, we are never alone. The faithful one will never leave us or forsake us. So it's appropriate that Paul concludes the letter in verse 22 by praying that the Lord be with your spirit and give grace to the church in Ephesus. This chapter began with Timothy's marching orders in the presence of God. It concludes with the confidence that God's presence is will be with Timothy. And brothers and sisters, that's why we too can remain faithful until Christ returns as we stay committed to the truth and as we stand together to the end because he is the one who faithfully stands with us. So, how will that future judgment day shape the way that you live today. For those who have been rescued by Christ, we can have confidence today as we face that future day because of the darkest day, a day in the past, a day when the one who preached the truth and who was the truth was condemned by lies. A day when at his defense, no one stood by him, but Peter denied him three times. A day when as he faced the lion's mouth of the cross, his disciples deserted him in fear. A day when the innocent sacrifice poured out his life as a drink offering for sinners. A day when the eternal Son of God cried out, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? It is because our faithful Savior was deserted for us on that darkest day that we can look forward with eager hope for that final day when he will come back, confident that he will never leave us or forsake us, confident that the one who wore our crown of thorns will give us his crown of righteousness And we will say with Paul, to him be the glory forever and ever. We will crown him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Are you ready for that day? Let's pray. Lord, we praise and thank you that we can look forward to Christ's return with joyful hope because we've been rescued. We stand in Christ. We know that when that trumpet sounds and the judgment day comes, we know where we'll be. We'll be found in Christ. Thank you that you have accomplished such a victory over our own sin, over injustice, over death. You've risen again to life and given us life everlasting. We praise you for that, and we look forward to that day with joy and hope in our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.